that's dope. One of the prevailing narratives in crypto is that institutionalization is happening and that institutions are rushing into the space, but we don't really necessarily have the facts to support that until I talk to David Young, who's the head of institutional research at Coinbase. Now, Coinbase seems to be the preferred platform for institutions in the United States to gain exposure to the digital asset class, so nobody has better insight as to what's happening with institutions in crypto. So I think that one of the main narrative certainly in crypto over the past few years and now has been institutional adoption of the asset class. You're the head of uh, research for institutions at Coinbase, so you probably have your finger on the pulse of that more than anyone else. Are there any narratives that you're seeing that are outright false about what's actually happening in that side of the space, or do you really think that we're having this big push of institutional adoption? Yeah, I actually have seen that volumes have actually antennaxed over the course of 2021, for example. So at the end of 2020, we were getting institutional volumes around 120 billion on our platform. That increased to 1.14 trillion by the end of 2021. So we are seeing that institutionals actually are stepping in here. I think 2021 was a very big onboarding year for them. Uh, and certainly not all of them were prepared for what it took to actually be there because you needed back-end systems, risk systems, research, like a lot of things that, that I think they didn't necessarily have in place. They thought it was going to be two, three months uh, that you know they were just able to kind of step in. And it turned out that there was a lot that actually it was a little bit different. Like the technology is really innovative, but these systems aren't necessarily that progressive. So that back-end had to be built out. Now, of course, we're kind of going through a bit of a lull in you know, uh, the crypto period. But I think for a lot of institutionals, if they were interested in this six months ago or a year ago, they're even more interested in it now because the valuations are a lot better for them. And we probably will start seeing that cash come in in the second half of the year. Well, it's interesting because the probably like the mainstream media narrative or what you would hear on the street is price is down, it's dead. But we are saying that uh, sophisticated investors understand that well, I missed it at 30 last time. It went to 69. Here we are again. Right. Maybe this is an opportunity. No, exactly. Um, I think market like institutional investors in particular are savvy. They actually know that you know, there's volatility in the market. The volatility is kind of what lubricates uh, the, their ability to take advantage of cycles. And what we're seeing right now is a cyclical downturn. It is not something structural. I think the fundamental narrative surrounding cryptocurrencies is still that the secular curve for adoption is still very steep. And I think that as long as that trend is going to be there, you want to capture that. So I don't think anyone's under the impression that things are only going to go linearly up forever because there's no asset that does that. And certainly cryptocurrencies don't fall into that bucket. I think that we are talking about long duration speculative assets that, yeah, sometimes are influenced by hype cycles. And we got a lot of that in the second half of last year, for example. Uh, but there is still a lot of opportunity to be had here. And we are just in the early stages for a lot of these developments. I don't know if you interface directly sort of with the institutional clients or uh, providing research, but are there hard questions that they're still asking? Are there major concerns that they have? Is it surrounding custody, insurance, security? What questions are they still asking? What's preventing them maybe from pulling the trigger? So there's a really wide range of clients and education levels when it comes to crypto. And some are very much at that level of, 
okay, we're trying to figure out custody solutions. We're trying to figure out like, uh, you know, should we be having a cold wallet or a hot wallet? Uh, are we able to trade on your balance sheet in order to use that? Because we have long short strategies we want to go. And there are some who are literally asking, we understand what a blockchain is, but <laughs> can you tell us about like what what investments are are there available beyond like Bitcoin and Ethereum? Because we really don't have a grasp on that, you know. And and so there are some that are really far up that curve, and they completely know what they need in the space, and they are looking for probably to to kind of your question, all right, where are we? When are we going to get the regulatory clarity on this? Like, uh, and you know, just even like yesterday, they'll be asking me like, what do you think about? You know, Cynthia Loomis's, like, Kirsten Gillibrand's bill. Like, do you think it's going to be progressive, positive for the space? Like, where are we going to see that? Um, they're trying to figure out, like, what about commingling of assets for the custody account? So there is that. But I think there's just as many people who are just trying to figure out kind of just the beginnings of their, their crypto journey and trying to understand where they fall in, in that respect. Sounds like an accurate reflection of retail. Right, just we have people from every level of sophistication, but it does seem like now even your average people and certainly your average institutions are asking the question. And I think that that's probably the biggest change in my mind, right? All these people who probably either had a negative opinion or no opinion at all, I think have to have one because their customers are going to ask or, I mean, do you find that every institution now, the CFO sort of has to have some crypto knowledge? That's absolutely right. You know, like, when we're talking about levels of sophistication as well, you have to look at the segments within certain fund managers or companies because there is oftentimes a, I'm going to say, skews younger kind of group within that who is very knowledgeable about the space. Like even within pension funds or endowments or other places, like you, people seem to think of these as conservative institutions, but they know what they're talking about. They understand cryptocurrencies. They understand the technology. Um, you know, I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago where it was mainly macro focused and at least 30% of it was dedicated to the idea of cryptocurrencies. So where three years ago, I would say you go to a fund manager and you say like, hey, what's your view on cryptocurrencies? They'd probably be like, why do I need to know that? Yeah. Now, if you go to one and they don't have a view in cryptocurrencies, you'd be like, well, you're not going to be taken seriously. Yeah. And I think that's very much where we are at this point. So there's still some education to kind of get further up like the, the food chain for some of these companies. But for the most part, they're all looking at it. And I think crypto literacy is actually picking up very fast. Specifically in your job, what kind of research are you providing? What do they see as the most valuable? You know, is it is it really top to bottom? Is it more macro context? Everything? Yeah, I would like to say everything. Uh, so that's our mandate, just everything. Uh, no, but our idea, you know, we come from the mindset of trying to provide actionable market intelligence. So I think there's a lot of good research out there, but it's not necessarily skewed towards how do I utilize this in my investment framework? And that's really what we're trying to do. So we're, we're more of kind of a niche kind of focus, but we are looking at market views, uh, thematic reports on, hey, what's going on with the merge at the moment? Uh, are we going to actually achieve it by end of Q3, for example? Uh, we will also be looking at tokenomics of specific coins and trading insights. So we want to understand what the slippage versus market order size looks like because that's really important to a lot of institutional clients. Sounds like you must have a big team. I, I wish I could say that. Uh, we are building it out. You know, like I, there, there's so much intelligence at the company I work for, at Coinbase, that uh, I'm able to kind of pull people in and they're all excited. So they all want to contribute something. And I think that's kind of the great place. So I've cobbled together a super team <laughs> out of, out of, a, out of a very big group.
But I mean, Coinbase has outwardly said, we basically want to list everything that can viably be listed, right? I mean, it's sort of the ethos of the company, which I, by the way, totally agree with, right? People should be able to trade what people want to trade. But does that mean that you're going to somehow have to have research one day for 19,000 tokens and provide that to your clients? I do not know. <laughs> I'll be honest, like that prospect has crossed my mind. You know, like you think of, about active tokens versus the 19,000 tokens. Course, and it's, and yeah, yeah <laughs> you could probably just cut it by half, like yeah. uh, just, just by that alone. But even the prospect of 10,000 tokens, that, that's, that's significant. I think we do need a taxonomy in this space. I think that we are probably getting there. People have been already proposing them. Uh, so we're really trying to figure out on a sector by sector basis, like what are the projects that we need to really think about. Uh, and so we're probably going to get there more than anything else, trying to like tackle sectors of uh, the crypto universe rather than try and tackle individual tokens. I really think that's probably going to be the better way to go with research. I, I think that taxonomy would be essential for regulators as well. And I would love to have that in existence and agreed upon before they come down heavy handed and just throw everything into one boat. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, even just you look at, I, I hate talking about Luna, but in general, like the even the miss sort of characterization of an algorithmic stablecoin as a stablecoin, if that even wasn't called a stablecoin, we would be in a better place. You know, and I think that I've seen some taxonomies that include DAI in the same bucket as UST, and even that, I'm just like, like nope. you have an over-collateralized stablecoin versus an algorithmic stablecoin. And I completely agree with you. I think that uh, there is difficult as a prospect, but I think for a lot of the, from the regulatory standpoint, they need to recognize that this is not a monolith, that you have governance tokens. A lot of these tokens actually act as both productive capital and functional capital. How do you regulate for that is unlike any of the assets we have seen come before it. So I think slowly we're getting there and we're recognizing that these things are unique uh, and that it takes a unique hand to actually have guidance on it. What an incredible challenge, though, because by the time you've done the taxonomy, there's 20,000 more coins. <laughs> That's right. Actually, that's one of the, the good things about having things kind of slow down a little bit, like in, in the way we're kind of experiencing right now, because a lot of these projects coming on board now actually are very thoughtful because it's not just, for lack of a better term, a cash grab. Right. You know, like they are actually like, I, I can believe in these projects. The developers working on this space are, are believers in the project. I think things like that are going to actually reinforce this space more than anything else. What approach do you think, I, I know you can't make a sweeping generalization at all because we've already talked about the fact that they're all over the educational curve, but your average institution that wants some sort of exposure to this asset class, I can't imagine we have people saying, hey, I need to get 50% of my balance sheet into Bitcoin. What are we seeing as far as the sort of, I guess, baby steps of exposure that they're looking for? How are they starting to really get into the, into the space? Yeah, you know, a lot of traditional concepts apply. You know, uh, they are thinking about what is their risk tolerance level, uh, how much liquidity do they need on hand. And certainly they are looking at a holistic picture of their portfolio to try to say, OK, you know what, this like this percentage of our uh, of our allocation to cryptocurrencies actually works quite well relative to the risk we're taking in equities, in bonds or or even like our fixed income sleeve of this. But I think it's very interesting to see that some of these pension funds, like, and this is public information, like Fairfax County, like uh, the retirement fund, like, you know, they have a DeFi sleeve now. That's something that I wouldn't have expected. Unbelievable. You know, yeah. it's, it's incredible. Um, like Houston Firefighters Retirement Fund as well, you know, they, they're actually invested in, in these assets. So it's incredible to kind of see like the mindset that 
people are actually willing to take the risk here. And they actually, some of it is still viewed as part of their tech sleeve uh, or part of their tech stack. But I think a lot too is kind of understanding that blockchain technology is its own thing. It's, it's, it's separate and it's innovative and it's going to be part of like a, perhaps a different allocation in their portfolio. Frankly, I would have to imagine at this point some of the narratives that have existed to keep people out of the space, the volatility and et cetera, as, as horrible as it is to see what happens in the stock market, when you see the Facebooks and the Netflix and the Snapchats of the world drop 30% after hours in five minutes, it sort of diminishes the negative cases against Bitcoin. But you get everybody everybody's exposed to meta stock in some way, shape, or form, whether they know it or not, right? right? So they have that exposure to assets that are behaving in the same manner. Well, this is what I don't like about the way some of the reporting has been done on cryptocurrencies. Because if you look at the information, and this is the part where I'm going to get a little bit nerdy, so just Please. bear with me. But for example, like if you compare it to other currencies like G10 currencies, like the euro, the sterling, the yen, for example, like up until early May, crypto was outperforming. And what do I mean by that? It wasn't that if you look on an absolute basis on the absolute return that like it was actually doing better. I'm talking about on a standard deviation basis. Like we were looking at three, four standard deviation moves, sigma moves on these currencies. So they were weaker by like these levels compared to a one sigma move on Bitcoin and Ethereum. It was actually doing way better. And I don't think anyone recognized that because they're saying, oh, well, it's a X percent move compared to this X percent move. That's not the way to look at it because we're talking about 60-ball asset. Right, or the media just says down 60%. Exactly. Because they only look at the, apparently the all-time high as the benchmark for, for current price, which is right. absurd. But, and it's easier, and that's why they do it, but you need to do the work when you want to look at this space. You know? and, and when you actually look at the, a fair comparison, I, I would say that you're still actually looking at a very strong asset in this class. I mean, I, I often make the point that it's everything obviously correlates when you're in a risk-off environment to some degree. But you only have to go back to March of 2020 to see that Bitcoin was under $4,000, albeit briefly, and went to 69. And even if it's down, you know, half of that, we're still up seven, eight, nine times while the stock market doubled and everybody cheered those gains. It's Absolutely. almost like they forget the upside when things do decorrelate again and only right. focus on the downside. And, and that's like to Jamie Dimon's comment about, you know, comparing the economy to a hurricane or, or going through a hurricane. And, you know, if that analogy is apt, well, when my house has the windows broken and my car is, is damaged because it's a hurricane, I don't say, gee, I wonder what the correlation is between that damaged car and that broken house. I just say there's a hurricane and that's what's happening right now. You know, and so I, I think that very much with cryptocurrencies, like it's it gets misconstrued because in context, everything is suffering. We're all converging to a beta of one. So, you know, it, it's not as if it's not going to retain some of its fundamental secular properties going forward. It's just that we are going through a cyclical downturn. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I obviously believe that it offers some idiosyncratic risk long term, but maybe not for three months. Right. Exactly. Uh, and it's disingenuous to pretend that correlations can really be measured based on what happens in that extremely short period of time. Right. In my opinion. And even now, like you start seeing that the correlations peaked somewhere around 80% between S&P and Bitcoin, for example, but already starting to trend lower again. Now, I'm not saying that it's still not high, yeah. but it, these things are not 
constants, you know, like, I don't know if we're going to get back to the 20 to 40% like uh, correlations that we had prior to this sell off and all, you know, risk assets. But I do think that we're going to be at least much lower than where we are today. Coinbase has obviously been the biggest, most notable first to do a direct listing to be trading. Did, did it feel ever like you guys put yourself in the line of fire as a result of that? Uh, I think that being innovators in this space is definitely like in kind general of, being in, yeah, yeah, you know, like and and certainly there are advantages to being a first mover, but there are also disadvantages as well because that means you put your neck out on the line, uh, and I think unfortunately that's kind of it kind of makes you a target at times, and so I think we've seen that over the course of well, the, the history of Coinbase, I should say. There are some serious head scratchers though. Obviously, when you did the listing and people didn't understand the difference between an IPO and a direct listing and then said that the insiders were dumping when they didn't realize that you literally have to list your shares for there to be shares to sell. Yeah, I, I, It's just, it, it feels like sometimes it's just completely misinformed. I think that it's a learning experience for a lot of people. And the good, the upside on this is that once it happens, fortunately, I think people get more sophisticated and then understand the situation. But at the moment, yes, I completely like hear what you're saying. Do, do you think, obviously, that the regulatory environment right now is more or less complex than it was before? I mean, another head scratcher for me was when the SEC, you know, Gary Gensler says, hey, come on in, talk to us. And then you guys try to approach them with a very reasonable 4% uh, yield product and get threatened with litigation. That doesn't seem like a very welcoming environment. Do you think that that's changing? I mean, we have a bill now that's actually pushing towards the CFTC rather than the SEC. That could be favorable. Or do you guys still think it's you have to be pretty uh, careful with how you approach regulators? I really want to see what comes at the end of all these things because it's there's such a jurisdictional approach in the U.S. at least in terms of how regulation is happening, um, and Congress is doing this. I I think the bill is very innovative and in kind of what it's trying to push, uh, the one proposed by Loomis and Gildebrand. Um, but also, I would love to see what kind of comes out from the executive order we had in March uh, with the Treasury Department that's going to be reported sometime in the end of September, October. You know, I think, unfortunately, there's been a bit of a land grab when it comes to regulation yeah. so far in the space. And even though these agencies have a memorandum of understanding, which means that they should be working together, and maybe some ways they are, some ways they aren't, uh, I would like to see a more cohesive approach to kind of this because we want the regulatory clarity. We want the oversight in the space. We just don't want regulation by enforcement. I think that is like the principle that we're kind of guided by. Other than that, I think that we're very welcoming to, oh, you want to put some framework around stable coins? That, that's, that's great. Yeah, you know, like we, we, they great. should be. Yeah, we should have a framework Makes for sense. that. Exactly. Uh, it's better than a fractional reserve bank. Right. And I think that's the thing. You know, there is the setup, though, between like TradFi and DeFi of this idea that like, oh, like the fractional reserve banking system hasn't had an innovation in X number of years. And like this is DeFi and crypto that's coming in with like new ideas and, and, and trying to really kind of broaden that out. And we're like, part of that's true because the infrastructure needed to maintain those things are just so huge commercial banks, correspondent banks, compliance departments, and, and all these things. But like that wasn't necessarily the origins of DeFi, right? Or the origins of DeFi were like, I believe in these things. There are 300 million wallets out in the world, and we like need liquidity because we're sitting on a bunch of digital assets that we really like, 
but I also need to buy things. Uh, so it was, well, a bank's not going to lend me on these digital assets that I have. Well, I'm going to create, like, lending and borrowing systems. Do I can ourselves. borrow it for, to, to do it ourselves. It came from a place of need. And that's the innovation in crypto. It wasn't like, hey, I'm here to like eat finance as lunch. It was, we need to do this because otherwise like we won't have liquidity. That's such an important point. Everyone feels like if we're going to replace this global system, you don't need to replace it. You just need to actually offer something to all the people who don't have any access to it in the first place, which is most people on the planet. Exactly. It feels like we just sort of have lost that ethos along the way, or at least the narrative has, because now we're talking about institutionalization and nation states adopting crypto and all those things. But still about your random person who literally can't get a bank account or doesn't have Internet access and now has a bank on their phone. Absolutely. I think that we cannot forget that that's the origins of why this, this stuff exists. You know, like the, permission, the permissionless, decentralized nature of cryptocurrencies and digital assets in general. Like, it is there because, you know, in the U.S. we sit in a very privileged position, but I used to cover emerging markets. Like, I did that for 70 plus America, years. right? I mean, right. Yeah. Uh, and there, like, there are countries that are cut off from capital markets. There are countries that have capital controls on them. Like, they need digital assets. You know, it, it's, it comes from a place of need, not in the place that, you know, other countries uh, that are more fortunate to have a, the global reserve currency of the world. Like, I don't have to worry about the things they do. I don't have to worry about hyperinflation in the same way because even though we have 8.6% inflation here, it's not 50%. It's not 70% inflation. That, that's right. And we have the dollar <laughs> access to it, as you said. You just made so many points that I've made when I'm the guest on other things. People say it's not an inflation hedge. Tell that someone in Venezuela. Right. It may not be our inflation hedge, but that doesn't mean it's not an inflation hedge. Exactly. Yeah, I, I often ask that same question of like, when you say inflation, whose inflation are you talking about? That's right. Uh, but that, I mean, that really is the, the difference. And the funny thing is, is obviously in the El Salvador's and Venezuela's of the world, El Salvador obviously doesn't have hyperinflation. But it, Bitcoin is amazing. But also stable coins, they just want to be able to get dollars and they can't. Absolutely. Right. I mean, so people are looking for access to dollars and crypto solves that. Right. And that's not anything that people were talking about at the beginning. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's why we have like, you know, maybe we are dealing with the nuances in our space of like, hey, what's a fiat, a fiat backed stablecoin look like relative to an algorithmic stablecoin? But we want these things to scale. You know, maybe that might be one of the next challenges, I think, for fiat backed stablecoins, because if we do add that framework in it and we say like, oh, these need to be short term instruments or cash. Well, how much availability of these short-term instruments and cash do you we actually have? Five hundred billion dollars on the books, or a trillion dollars at scale to actually service those redemptions. Exactly, and I think maybe that's what algorithmic stablecoins were trying to solve for, because they could scale, but they didn't have the monetary policy. And with fiat-backed stablecoins, you are borrowing the the monetary policy from centralized authority, but you have one, and I think that's its real value. Um, we just need to kind of figure out how do we. How do, you know, how, how, how do we scale then? It would be way? nice if our experiments didn't break on such a grand uh, scale and such a fireworks show. Yeah, well, <laughs> this was the thing. It was a market that was testing liquidity and solvency trades everywhere. Yeah. And this is the one that didn't pass. So, uh, I mean, outside of obviously your role at, at Coinbase specifically, you're obviously so deep in the weeds on all of this because of your role. Is there anything that truly excites you that maybe everyone's not looking at that's coming soon in this space? We definitely talked about regulatory. I think that's important. I think it's going to be a big theme in the second half of this year. 
Um, everyone's looking at the merge, so I, I shouldn't just say that, but I, I am no, excited about it. That is you know, one. like I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it. I, I am the guy who's kind of like, oh, the Robson testnet actually passed through the merge. This is great. Yeah. You know, and like, then, like now, tracking it like five hours later to check that nothing's gone wrong. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and be like, okay, like, all right, we got Gorley in a couple of weeks now. Like, what's going to happen? And so I'm super excited about that. Uh, and I, I think people misinterpret what that, the, the significance of this event, because this is really the first time. We've seen anyone change the consensus mechanism of a blockchain. This is like fantastic. Like this is, if it can be done, like this is going to be amazing. But people are like, oh, is it going to reduce fees? Well, no. Is it, is it going to make it faster? Well, like maybe 9% faster, which is not nothing, but it's, it's now, you know, we go from like maybe 14, 13 seconds to like 12 seconds. It's, it's still important. But like it's, it's the efficiency. It's the mechanism itself. Like think of all the developers are building on it. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, and I am looking to the L2 technology as well. You know, not just like kind of the distribution of the tokens, but like I really want to see the ZK rollups kind of build it. I want to see the EIP like 4844 after it that's going to roll up more data onto the, uh, the consensus layer and uh, the execution layers in order to kind of get that done. Like I think that's going to be really exciting to me. So the, like the possibility that we'll see on ramps onto these L2s, like I think that's something that we cannot discount at this moment. I think the uh, theme there as I listen is that you're really excited to see if we can scale. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, and, and that's, it's a question, like are we going to be able to fill that block space? I, I do, I think we are. You know, I think that there is going to be demand there, but like it's it's kind of a, if you build it, they will come kind of situation. And and maybe I'm being too optimistic, but uh, I you know I I I'm a believer in the technology. I, I don't think it's too optimistic. I think historically, if you look at the development of any technology, it's zero to one. We all know that's really hard, and we've clearly done zero to one. So now it's just things are going to break. <laughs> We're proving that more often than not right. at this moment, unfortunately. But there's no question that it eventually gets there. But it is, it is an important question to say, okay, cool, we're this niche little industry, but what happens when 2 billion people are trying to use this? Right. But, you know, we, we've seen this happen time again, and this is kind of the nature of technology. You know, it may not look the same in, in a couple of years' time, but, like, we need to test it. We need to test, like, these things right now because we are trying to build it for the future. And, you know, I, I used to be a computer science major. I was a, I was a programmer for a short period of time. And, and like, like, this is par for the course, <laughs> you know? Like, uh, this is kind of what happens. Before I got into finance, like, this is the stuff that I was kind of, uh, that I was invested in and I was mired in. And I think that we're just kind of seeing the next iteration of that. Well, I could tell you have, like, a real passion for this and I can see why <laughs> you probably enjoy doing your job every single day. It's hard to be deep in this on a regular basis with, all of the sort of swirling FUD and <laughs> antagonism. And it's, it's great to see that we have people that are really, really passionate about it. No, thank you. And, and talking to you, Scott, like, I feel the same, uh, you know, like, I love you it. know, you're so knowledgeable about this. I love it. Well, we're, so we have to, I think at the end of the day, and strictly what you're doing, it's all about education. Yes. Uh, you know, it's, it's a lot about that. Educating myself. Of, of, of course, no, of course. But there has to be a base level of knowledge that still doesn't exist, I think, in the mainstream. Um, I, I think we're getting there, but you're right. You know, I, I think that uh, it's it's still going to take time and people are still kind of wrapping their heads around. Like, I think once you start getting it, like, it just starts coming. Like, I, I've never seen anyone who kind of gets on this curve because the, the typical education curve is like... Goes back. Yeah, like, you know, oh, like, this is... Uh, 
this is interesting, but I'm still pretty skeptical of it. Oh, I like blockchain technology. And then it quickly migrates to, oh, I kind of get it. And blockchain technology needs to be kind of embedded in, in tokens. And then it goes to, well, what else can I do with this? And what, you know, and like that, that curve, it, it, then it's just so steep. And it's a one-way street. Absolutely. You never, even like the billionaires, institutions, whatever, you never see any of them climb back out of the rabbit hole. No. Right? It really is. A, you go, once you're down it and once people get it, you never see them reverse course. I get that question all the time, too, of like, oh, like, where do I start? And, and, and how do I kind of learn about the space? And like, how do I, to, you know, to your question earlier, how, how am I going to learn like 19,000 tokens? I'm like, you just don't. You, you, you don't. Like, just start. And then I will talk to them about a month later, and they're like, they're already like three levels like where they were previously because they're just like, they, they can't stop themselves. Yeah, I think that that's uh, hopefully the trajectory that everyone will take. And what I get from this conversation, it's going to be a very exciting year. I think, I think so. Like, I, and I hope exciting good. But uh, yeah. on, on all fronts, I think it always only moves in one direction. It's a positive one, even with a few, uh, obviously, uh, peaks and valleys. Yes, yes. Thank I, you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Scott. Coinbase should put you out uh, in front of the press more often. You're great at this. Oh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if I, I can tell them that. you're going to be their new PR guy. <laughs> oh, good. Oh. All right, I'll, I'll tell them not to take your call. Okay, <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll stay in your role then. <laughs> thank you. No, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you haven't already left a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do that now. Spotify just added ratings, so please go ahead and click that five star. I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>